This season of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years and remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. You will have seen those iconic yellow boxes in just about anybody who's anybody's kitchen. This autumn, they're running an amazing giveaway to help you fall in love with cooking. In order to be in with a chance to win an incredible cookware bundle consisting of a set of kitchen knives, apron, oven gloves, and a signed Tom Carriage hand and flowers cookbook, they want to hear about your favorite cozy autumn dish. It's very simple to enter. All you have to do is follow Cooks Matches on Instagram, like the post on their page, which tells you about the giveaway, and then simply leave a comment with your favorite autumn meal. I mean, to be honest, that's going to be the hardest bit narrowing down your favorite dish to just one, but you can do it. The competition runs until the 28th of October, so get entering. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk. Good luck to everyone, and thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all well and that you've had a lovely week. Now, I know that I told you a few weeks ago about pressing the wrong button and how it would never happen again. Well, you know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) I only went and did it again. Honestly, after a hundred episodes or so, you would think that I would have got the hang of this recording malarkey, but here we are. I think it was also a combination of me pressing something I shouldn't have probably when I was chatting, and then also the fact that there were three of us. And so this is definitely a friendly, chatty conversation where there are some overlaps in when people are talking. But hopefully you get a rapport and it feels like you are part of the conversation with these two lovely sisters. I am still very much a one-man band and it's lovely when people think that there is a team behind helping me. That hasn't been the case up until now. (laughs) But with all of these um, mistakes I seem to be making, maybe the universe is trying to tell me something. Anyway, on with today's episode, which is with the wonderful Rangoon sisters. I've been wanting to talk to them for ages as their story is really inspiring and I love that they've done all of this as a side hustle and more than a side hustle, all of it goes to charity. They don't profit from the Rangoon sisters, which I think is very admirable. We recorded this several weeks ago and they very generously sent me some lapette to try, which is a classic and very delicious Burmese dish. The lapette was accompanied by the following message and... With the situation ever-changing in Burma, I felt it was really important to include. Hi, Margie. It was so nice to see you the other day. I hope that you enjoy the lapette that we've sent you. So lapette is the pickled tea leaf that is uh, really unique to Burmese cuisine. Looks a bit green and mulchy, but it's really delicious. It has slight acidity, slight bitterness. It really is a unique flavor, but it goes really well if you mix it with the crunchy beans and nuts and garlic. And you can also add some sliced cabbage and tomato for a bit of freshness. Chili is good, a bit of garlic oil and a bit of lime. Uh, Fish sauce can also add a bit of saltiness. So I really hope you enjoy it. As we mentioned, it is something that's typically eaten at the end of a meal. It's got a bit of a caffeine hit, which is great. And uh, historically, it was often consumed at the sort of settlement of disputes. And as you know, obviously, the situation in Burma is really tragic and upsetting with the military coup, and then if you add on top the situation with the COVID wave. Um, so yeah, if any of your listeners would like to find out more about ways they can help and places that we can recommend to donate, then they can go to our Instagram page, which is instagram.com slash Rangoon Sisters. And there's a link and you can find out more. Take care. Thank you so much for that, Emily. And now here is today's episode. 
My guests today are Emily and Amy Chung, aka the Rangoon Sisters. These two sisters are junior doctors by day, cooks by night, as they host sellout supper clubs as part of their mission to put Burmese food on the culinary map. The sisters started their supper club in 2013 after visiting Burma for the first time in 2012 and have since gone on to raise over £10,000 to charities since then. Their number one fan is Grace Dent, who said that their mohinga, the fish chowder, was the nicest thing she put in her mouth in 2017. Grace Dent has said, As a restaurant critic, I constantly giggle at their humble manner of serving some of the best food I've ever eaten. It's always brought to the table with the words, This probably isn't very good, but see if you like it. They brought out their debut cookbook last year to critical acclaim. It was in the Observer Food Monthly Top 10 Books of 2020. Steeped in family recipes and stories which are well-written and easy to follow, it's not hard to see why it's been such a hit. Emily has said, We are always nervous that we can pull this off again, but then the empty plates come back to the kitchen and we think, well, at some level we're doing okay. (laughs) Welcome, Emily and Amy. Thank you. That was a really nice introduction. Yes, thanks Thank for having you. me. No, you're so welcome. So those quotes by Grace Dent are pretty amazing. Do you take that kind of thing in your stride or are you often pinching yourselves that it's actually happened? I mean, I think definitely we, you know, we're still in shock at how sort of people have received us. And having a quote like that from, from Grace Dent is obviously amazing. You know, she's so well respected in the country, so... Yeah, I still don't believe that, actually, sometimes. Yeah, still pinching ourselves years later. And the fact that she said, not only do you make some of the best food she's ever eaten, but also that you're incredibly humble about it. I mean, that's just the best combination that you can get in a person, really, isn't it? I think we were laughing when you were saying that, because I think that is actually, that really sums yeah. us up, probably. I think we, we, I never, I'm always like, I don't think things, no. oh, I think, am mm. I doing this good enough? That will always be in the back of my mind. Every time we cook, we're always like, is this, oh, I don't know if they'll like it. <laughs> um, what, what's the phrase? Under promise, over deliver. And then no one kind of disappointed. <laughs> and so I'm guessing that she came to one of your supper clubs. Is that, how did that initially come about? She did come to one of our supper clubs and then and she'd invited us to take part in London Food Month prior to that. But she hadn't actually had much of our food. So we just invited her over for dinner and she came. And it was quite funny because she said that actually people didn't really ever invite her to their homes for dinner. It was always a case of them inviting her out or going somewhere to eat. So it's kind of novel to be in someone's home and fed food. That's very brave of you. Yeah. I don't know. Where did that come from? (laughs) Maybe there is a, maybe there is some confidence somewhere, but I just think, I think we wanted to kind of pay her back for being supportive and what better way than have someone over to your home and cook for them them lots of food. Mm. (laughs) The dream. (laughs) And the fact that you both have full-time jobs and working as doctors, no less, the Rangoon Sisters is something that you do on the side. I mean, that's just incredible. And to be honest, puts the rest of us to shame. Would you describe yourselves as overachievers? And just to preface that by saying, they double-checked the meaning of an overachiever. <laughs> and the phrase is definitely a compliment. And it's people who do great things, but they're constantly striving to accomplish more. Okay. I, I don't know. I hate to, to agree with that, but I guess that probably is the case. I mean, I think from since we were very young, I think... We were always encouraged to do a lot. So I think particularly our mum always wanted us to do lots of things. And so I think it was sort of instilled in us from a young age. And I think obviously we we both practice medicine and then doing the supper clubs. I think obviously we we did it. We saw it as a challenge, but also something we really enjoy as well. Mm -hmm. And I think people are always surprised about how we managed to do it alongside everything else. But I think actually it ends up being quite easy sometimes and quite effortless because I think we just enjoy cooking and we love the food as well so yeah I I mean I think when you apply to to do medicine you have to be kind of this all-rounder that does lots of things and participating team and music and so on and we were encouraged to do that and actually now I look back and think you know god we were so privileged to Mm. be given those opportunities by our parents and so this is kind of just an extension of that I guess what's built in now is we want to try and do our best uh, and do as, as many things as we can to, to as high standard as we can so yeah and it's about work-life balance as well because actually you know you can easily get burnt out in in any job and 
it's nice to have something completely different, a different outlet that is is hard work. Cooking is hard work. Mm. I don't know how people do it full time. It's so difficult, but you know, it's fun at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think we're very lucky yeah. that we're in a lot, you know, really great position where we can do the cooking as well. And we have so much fun. And you both work for the NHS. One of you is a psychiatrist and the other as a sexual health consultant. Did you both grow up wanting to be doctors from a young age or did you ever consider working in food? No. Uh, <laughs> I love uh, my job, by the way, but I, I, and I, I'm the one that does sexual health. And I was good at science and maths. And then, you know, you, you kind of think about what career options there are for you. And I was going to do a science degree, but then I realised I missed or I was missing out on that kind of interaction that you kind of you get in, in medicine. But I wouldn't say it was kind of my life's goal from childhood. You know, I really want to be a doctor and I really want to help people. It just kind of happened that way that's, you know, science and wanting to interact with people well, medicine. And actually, it's brilliant. I never for once would have considered doing food. I, I don't know, Amy... I mean, I think, I mean, I think that, yeah, it's the same for me as well. It wasn't that dream from, from, you know, childhood saying, I dream to be a doctor one day. No, it wasn't anything like that. But obviously I'm, you know, equally happy to have ended up in that career and I, I really enjoy it and I'm so glad that it's happened. Um, I think I, I guess thinking about our parents and what they, I mean, obviously our parents would have wanted us to do something that was secure and, and was going to pay well. I think, but my dad, I remember was saying, why do you want to be a doctor like your sister? You should do something like business or something like that. <laughs> Isn't every parent going to have two daughters? That's what you doctors? think. But I remember he was like, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do the same thing as your sister? I mean, talking about dad questioning like our choices. I mean, obviously he was happy at the end, but, um, you know, even with when we did started to do mm. supper clubs and get involved in food, he, he would privately ask our mum, I don't know why they're doing this because it doesn't earn them any money. Like, what is the purpose? Mm. But then by the, you know, as time went by, he could see how, how enjoyable it was and he mm. would volunteer mm. to help out. And it was really nice by the end. And he kind of see that there are other reasons to do. Yes. That. Yes. Not just the financial thing. So you say that your parents definitely had a big influence on you. Your dad was Hong Kong Chinese and your mother Burmese. And they were both really into food and the cuisines that they grew up with. But they also felt really strongly about you trying lots of different things. So let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I would choose wonton. So, you know, the squares of pastry, wonton pastry that you fill with meat or veg and then you fold them up. And what we would do is for parties, we would kind of all get together with our dad and our mom and make them all together. And it would be kind of a contest as to how many we could each fold up and how many would be a disaster. And then what we would do is fry, what my dad would do is he would deep fry them and then they'd be really nice and crispy and usually served with sweet and sour sauce. Then if you had excess, you could kind of boil them up and have them in a soup. So plain bit of soup, spring onion. And usually the filling would be a bit of minced pork, really simple minced pork, white pepper, and maybe a bit of spring onion. That was all really, really easy to make. But just many, many evenings making those together mm. and then serving them up to guests. That's kind of my strong childhood memory. Yeah, so delicious. When you say when you have excess, <clears throat> first of all, did you often have excess? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yes, that's, I mean, that's, I guess that's another sort of memory of childhood and, and sort of being at home, but it was that we'd often, so our parents would often entertain their friends and whenever that would happen, you knew you were going to have a feast and everyone always, always remembers those sort of days when you speak to them now, all the family friends of when you'd have like dish after dish coming out of the kitchen like a conveyor belt <laughs> and, the, and the sort of dining table just full of lots of dishes. And it would always be like a variety of things because obviously our parents have different heritage. So, yeah, dad would bring out the wontons. You'd have like roast duck. You'd have Burmese curry and some noodle dishes and just... It was amazing. Just all those memories of everyone just tucking in and, you know, obviously going for seconds. Yeah, and <laughs> That's mandatory. <isn't> it? <laughs> so for anyone listening who might not be familiar with Burmese food, I think when asked this before, you've said that your dishes are bold curries and super salads are similar to other Asian styles of cooking, but they, they have more flavour. Is that how you describe it? 
Well, that's a bit of a controversial <laughs> thing to say. More flavour. I think. Yeah, definitely. If you've not, if you're not familiar, you know, it, it's reminiscent of lots of other similar uh, Southeast Asian cuisines, you know, in Thailand and Malaysia. But yeah, I think there's kind of textures to a lot of dishes, particularly the salads. So mm. they may be soft and crunchy, but also, um, you know, sour elements, sweet elements, spicy elements. So it's kind of that combination of lots of textures and tastes. There can be a lot of intensity from things like fermented shrimp paste mm. and fermented flavours and fish. And, yeah, it's not necessarily kind of blow up spicy heat. I yeah, think. I think, uh, I guess in, in Burmese food, it's not necessarily, you know, very spicy like maybe Thai food is. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit more fragrant, I guess, the spicing that you get. And I guess another thing about Burmese food is that often when you, you know, sharing all the dishes you often have some condiments on the side and you'll have extra chili oil or you know extra fish sauce or limes and things like that so you can tailor it to to what you sort of prefer and and we always have those things on the table because you know sometimes you do like things a bit more spicy or maybe you don't so it's flexible such a nice way of eating so it's sort of familiar flavors but Mm. using them in a in a different way and perhaps a different combination that people might be used to yeah yeah i think so i think i also read but a common thread is that every dish will have at least three of the five tastes of salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and unan. Do you think that's true? Yeah, definitely, <laughs> true. definitely, definitely true. true. One always trying to get that balance, I think. Mm. And you are obviously champions of Burmese food and, and feel passionately about spreading the word. But surely not enough people have tried Burmese food. And why do you think that is? Well, it's partly because there aren't necessarily that many restaurants, in the, certainly in this country. I mean, until not that long ago there was only one in london and now there are two or three and there are more sort of sub clubs and pop-ups doing burmese food there is a big burmese population exactly so why why is that i suppose until fairly recently Mm. people weren't traveling there so much and i suppose now that or maybe prior to what's been happening recently people were traveling there more and kind of there was more um, knowledge and experience spreading about it but it's doubt as you say there's lots of there are lo- lots of Burmese people here or people from Burma mm. and the food is being cooked and being eaten but not necessarily I guess in the shared with yeah shared with the public but I think also people are definitely a lot more adventurous I think and and people have a lot more varied I don't know tastes and and are looking to try something new so I think that's also helped probably with what we've done at the supper clubs because I think People just, you know, people are really interested to try something they haven't had before. Definitely. And and the national dish is the fish noodle dish, which mm. I probably completely mispronounced. Is it Mahinga? That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. That no, that's nice. fine. No, How would you say it? How would you say it? I probably say it differently to mum as well, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, Mohinga. Oh, okay. yeah. I like how you I, were like, I'll like, oh, do. I'm not going to. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, um, that's a dish that you should definitely try. Oh, yeah. and, and is that the dish that sort of made Grace Den fall in love with you guys? That, yeah, that she was the it. dish, actually, that it, she yeah. commented on. And yes. so tell us a little bit about what is that dish? It's a fish soup. So in Burma, you, you would use this type of catfish, which you can't get here. But anyway, you can recreate it with other things. And it's got lemongrass and the usual onion, garlic, ginger. And there is chilli, so it's a bit spicy, but you can add more chilli to your taste. So it's kind of quite fragrant with the lemongrass. And then it's got, um, and then what happens is you serve it with uh, rice vermicelli noodles and then boiled egg. And then you have crunchy uh, chana dal fritter, which really, you uh, personally, I think you always need to add that kind of crunchy texture. You kind of crumble it into the soup, and it's a bit of lime and coriander. If you like, you can have a bit of raw onion, and it's really nice and warming, and it's dead easy to make because uh, we uh, make a kind of cheats version with pilchards from a tin. Brilliant! That's a clever idea. I think it's, I guess that twist on it is, I guess what that sort of highlights is. So when, sort of when our grandma and, and mum first came over here, I guess is trying to adapt, sort of to, to being able to cook the dish, but sort of adapt to what's available here. And um, usually um, you would use catfish, but they, they just sort of 
discovered that actually using pilchards worked really well. And so that's, I guess, how we've continued to make it as well. Another clever thing about the way that you two cook is it's making things accessible. Like all of your recipes, I feel like... Yeah, they're easy to recreate. That's sort of part of their charm, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's what we were trying to achieve and, you know, trying to make it easy for anyone to make it. I don't think, you know, there aren't any techniques which are, you know, really sort of tricky or anything like that. And we hope that most people are able to cook it. And you can get a lot of ingredients nowadays anyway. Yeah, I think things have changed so oh, yes. much over the past few years, haven't it? So let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Okay. So I know this is, this is again sticking to the Burmese theme, but when I did think about it, I thought actually it was probably the Onokau Square, which is the chicken curry noodle dish. And I think that was very much from seeing mum always cooking it and we'd always have it for celebrations at home. So we'd always have it for birthdays a lot of the time. And I think that was when I definitely started picking up more and more from mum. Should I? I'll describe it. <laughs> so I guess it's like the like the uh, mowing go. It's like a, a bed of noodles, and you get this very aromatic coconut chicken curry that you sort of pour over, and it's quite soupy. And then you put on the boiled egg, and then I guess again the crispy element, which is deep fried crispy noodle, which go on top as well. You mix into the bowl, and it's all full of texture. And then you have you know again the spice with the chili and extra fish sauce as well. And it's always a great one for sort of communal eatings. I just have a big bowl of it in the middle of the table and everybody digs in. Oh, that's such, that's such well. a nice way of eating. Yeah. And how old do you think you were when you started experimenting with that? I think probably, I just think probably at primary school coming yeah. towards the end, you know. Yeah. Because I, I read that both of you guys, very young, you were in charge of Christmas lunch, which <laughs> yeah. that's quite a yeah. feat. Yeah. How old do you think you were when you were doing that? I mean, I think I was probably... probably. Well, um, we, are you, you, I was probably old. I mean, you'd maybe in primary school, maybe I was in early secondary school. Yeah. I think mum was happy to give, yeah, give that over to us. us. <laughs> for yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you? I have to say mine would be spaghetti bolognese. Uh, so, I mean, I have no idea if it was, you know, particularly authentic or typical in how it's made. But I, I just, you know, it's kind of like that... Um, you know, midweek meals that we'd, we'd have like every, pretty much every week, I think. And I just remember watching mum kind of frying onions and garlic. And then obviously, um, and it's quite easy for you to kind of get involved and kind of throw things in and stir and brown the mints and chuck in the tomatoes. And then, you know, you can help with the spaghetti and yeah, something quite simple. I mean, I still eat it today. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's probably the first thing I learned to cook. <laughs> <laughs> it's making me think now, though, if, if we'd have that, and then Dad would use the you know the parmesan on top. The ones yeah, you get in the, in, the, in the in the tub. Oh, what the you know in the not not the one that doesn't come in the fridge. Oh, oh, the one that goes in the cupboard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, how do they get away with? I know. I don't know how that. What is, what is it? inside? I don't what is know. it? I don't, I don't, I don't I've know. had it for years. No, now, that is very. It reminds me of that. It's a very particular taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's go back to 2013 and the beginning of your supper clubs, because I believe it all started when you went to an American-themed supper club and you sort of thought maybe that was something that you could do yourselves, but possibly a bit better. I know, that's so strange. I think, so we, yeah, we did go to a supper club. I think that was probably maybe my first supper club, I'm not sure for Emily, but... um I don't know. I think they were they were showcasing lots of different genres of food at the time. And I think then it got us talking about, you know, Burmese food, you know, nobody's really tasted it. And so for some reason, the conversation then led to sort of, oh, well, could we do this? And then I think we just got spoke, uh, speaking to the organiser of the event and he just said, yeah, OK, just like that. And we've never done anything like that before. And we were just signed up to for this big challenge. And how long did you have to prepare? Like, was it pretty soon afterwards? I think we had a few mm, weeks, weeks so we could kind of test out a menu and I, I don't know he he didn't know us so there's obviously something about us that he felt he could trust <laughs> and I, I, tr- I trust you guys. thank you you were very <laughs> convincing maybe. and it was I mean we because now when people ask us about oh they'd be interested in starting up a supper club and I say oh yeah you know maybe start with a small group at home but no we didn't do that we had 60, at least 60 covers. Covers, yes. Oh, my goodness. For your first ever, the first ever event. event. And it was three courses. 
it was a bargain price, I would say. How much was it? Fifteen pounds. Wow. And it was really intense. And obviously, you learn a lot from that kind of throwing yourself in the deep end, cooking for sixty people. And I, I remember, you know, there was just food all over the floor, and we didn't really know what we were doing, but. But <laughs> no, then he came and found us and he said, Oh, uh, come out because some people want to meet you. So that was really nice because actually they'd had a good time. And yeah, I mean, you don't always, I see, you know, you don't always go somewhere and, and you know, say, I want to speak to. Well, no, like, I, was, <laughs> I, I want know, to, that was so delicious. To I need to speak to the chef. Yeah, so that was, <laughs> yeah, I think that was a surprise for us, but obviously a really lovely one. And, you know, I guess it just sort of reinforced the fact that, you know, we were doing something right and people were enjoying it. And I think that probably sort of led to us obviously doing it again <laughs> and yeah. again. Yeah, from then on it kind of, I guess it just sort of spiralled really and then events would sell out really quickly. And then I had a couple of maternity leaves, so we sort of had a bit of hiatus. Oh, thank goodness that you said that. I thought you were going to oh. say, have some maternity leaves, had some time on my hands and we did even more supper clubs. No. I was thinking, please don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> anything like me just lying on a sofa eating donuts trying to survive so obviously going from having only cooked for family and friends to cooking for 60 people at a go I I remember the feeling when I first cooked for people and they actually gave me money in exchange for the process and it it was a very strange feeling because you sort of you feel a bit guilty because you're enjoying it and it's fun cooking and then you take their money and it's such a strange transaction did you feel like that I mean, it felt like a nice bonus. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's, you know, you don't, you don't end up taking up a lot of money, <laughs> you know, from it. But um, I can't say I really felt that way. But I do feel that way a bit now, especially when sometimes, you know, our friends come. Oh, yeah, that and, feels weird. And that's like, otherwise, you know, on another day, I would cook this for you at home for free. I mean, obviously, we can't control what they do. So they, yeah, they, they buy the tickets and you see their name and like, oh. Oh. But it's really nice. And lots of my colleagues, I think your colleagues, mm. they book in because obviously they find they know what we do. And that's really nice, although it feels kind of weird. And But then I, I think, like you said before, we're in a really privileged position. This is not our main source of income. And so that's why it's quite nice because we what we've done for most of the events is then we just, we can give that to um, organisations which are close to our heart. You know, some of them are in Myanmar, some of them are here. I think, you know, for example, the hospice that looked after dad, it was really nice to be able to kind of give them something back for looking after him by doing something we enjoy. So, yeah. I know, the fact that you guys don't make any money from this is just another wonderful thing. We're just, we're just lucky. We're really lucky and... I don't think it's because we're like really nice people, which is lucky. Yeah. Well, I think that's debatable. I think you are very nice people. (laughs) (laughs) I've embarrassed you now. Let's talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. So I think we agreed on this one. Did we? Well, yeah, I mentioned it and then you mentioned it. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. It's really, this is a really different question because we've eaten a lot of food. Mm -hmm. In nice places, very lucky. But I think the dish I selected was the souffle at Le Gavroche, which we we went there for Mum's 60th. It's her 70th this year. I'm not sure how we can top it. But it's a cheese souffle and it's really, it's light, but yet really intense. And I'm rubbish at souffle, you know, making I've never it. made a souffle. Oh, no, disaster. But it's just so delicious. As part of that whole menu you know which is all wonderful so we were and that was a really I guess it's also associated with the memory it's like we were all together mm. with our parents having a really nice meal yes it was before children so it was really calm and peaceful <laughs> yeah the whole experience I mean it definitely is one of the best meals of my life I guess the other thing I th- I was thinking it's another French meal this was a meal at a Epicure restaurant in Paris which I went with my husband and we had foie gras and brioche (laughs) which i just think is is that the most indulgent thing ever it's a lot of butter which is why it's so delicious if you deep fried that that would be oh my gosh goodness guys i think that needs to happen (laughs) i've got a new deep fat fryer oh perfect (laughs) 
It would be a, a crime not to do it. <laughs> Chris and the deep fat frying. Yeah. <laughs> and we had Michelle Rue on a few weeks ago. And oh. He was talking about that cheese soup. Oh. And I have to say, I actually haven't stopped thinking about it. So oh, it's just I'm amazing. going to need to yeah. taste it. Yeah. We need to go back. Yeah. Your mother is from Burma. So you presumably had grown up with her sharing sort of that part of herself with you through the food that she cooked. And sharing the food of your youth and, and your particular culture with your children is an incredibly powerful way of teaching them not only about where you're from, but also part of who you are. She was born in Burma and she lived there until she was about 15, 16. She's a mix, so she's half Burmese, half English, because during colonial times there was a lot of mixing. Um, so, but yeah, I think... Obviously, her childhood was somewhat disrupted and her leaving was kind of quite a stressful time. And so food was definitely a way for her to connect with that, with, with her roots. And, and then sharing that with us is, was a way for us to. Because, as you mentioned, we didn't go to Burma till we were quite you know, adults, so 2012. So we'd grown up hearing about it and connecting with the food, but it's actually quite a long time before we visited and she hadn't been back for sort of over 40 years at that time as well. So, could your grandmother, she came over as well, a bit later. A bit later, mother, yeah. But she, so she was over here too. Yes. So it was nice, but at the same time, it was nice to, I think, in a way for grandma, that was kind of a way that we could connect to, you know, Burma was through food. Because she didn't really ever want to talk about being there. <clears throat> because leaving had been really traumatic for them. And she just never, ever wanted to talk about it. But at least... The food was a positive thing that, that enabled us mm. to connect with. Yeah, I think that was, you know, that was really the only sort of way we could really experience it was through food initially and maybe the odd photo. But I guess that's why when we went in 2012, it was such a big moment for all of us, including our mum. And, you know, to actually step into the country for the first time to see everything, the sounds, the smells, everything, it was so overwhelming. But you know, really amazing experience. Yeah, that must have been incredible. Like, how long were you there for when you went? So I went there a bit before because I was doing some medical stuff. Um, but I guess overall, we were probably there for about a month, <gasps> at least a month. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And I don't know, it's just having the food that you've sort of been brought up with, but actually having it in the place and having so much more, it just, just adds another level, I think, to the whole experience. And yeah, we just tried so many things. And I think that probably sort of encouraged us to maybe think, you know, maybe we could do something like this at home and, and share share more of these dishes with other people. Yeah, because I think one of the amazing things about your childhood is that you did grow up eating so many delicious different kinds of food. So, so Burmese food hadn't sort of dominated your childhood or your sort of life. And then to go and, and to eat all of these things in... You know, even if it's exactly the same dish, how your mum would make mm. it, sort of in the atmosphere of being surrounded by, you know, whatever's going on in the country. I think that's amazing. But it must have tasted quite different. It does in a way. It does. It's hard to explain or put in words. It's familiar. It is obviously familiar, but it's also <laughs> different. I mean, I think so. And I think what we'd also say is that obviously the way that our mum would cook something is probably very different from how mm. other families would cook mm. the same dish. Um, I guess that's just natural for there to be some differences, but obviously it's just the same, you know, obviously it's the same sort of main components, but it's always going to be a bit different from family to family. And yeah. we probably cook it differently to mum. You know, there will be lots of different kind of small variations in in, in tea shops, which is you know, kind of where you can get a lot of uh, dishes like Mohangar and it's open all day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, lots of dishes and, uh, and different regional variations. So you had one in the South, which kind of had a different fish and mm -hmm. had some vinegar in and it was kind of quite different and sour. And, you know, whilst we want to share um, knowledge and our own Burmese food, we are totally like aware that there are so many different variations and there's, you know, we don't, we don't own or kind of say, this is the way that you must do it because people have their little twists and variations in families and what's around. And, you know, that's a good thing, I think. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that is, what is your favourite sandwich? I'll go first because I know first. what your answer is. <laughs> I'm quite partial to a cheese toasty. 
I'm not particularly adventurous with sandwiches, but yeah, a, a cheese toasty. You and what is quite nice to add to the cheese toasty is something called bella chow. What's that? Which is it's a crispy. I guess you call it a condiment made of fried garlic and shallots and dried shrimp. I mean, there's different variations. So some people put a bit of dried shrimp, put a bit of fish or whatever, but essentially a shrimpy element and chili. And it's really delicious and Moorish. And you can have it in all sorts of ways with rice or on the side if you've got a big spread of dishes or quite simply on I'm going to give this to you later, by the way. Um, sliced, white, cheap sliced bread with a bit of butter, sprinkle that chow, that's your lunch done. That sounds incredible. So um, that recipe's in the book. But it's kind of onerous to make because it's a lot of frying, but it's worth it. And then by the time you've fried everything, it's like shriveled to this it's tiny bowl. <laughs> um, but you don't need a lot. You just have a little bit and it's great. What about you, Amy? What's your thing? Yeah, Amy, that's, that's I'm, I'm excited to hear what yours is if it can top that. Ah, she doesn't like Do you know sandwiches. what? I'm not sure. I'm, I don't even know how, how often I eat a sandwich. That's okay. I that's think. an answer in itself. And I think then it made me think of a memory. Okay. Maybe not so good one. Okay. <laughs> of going to school at primary school and always having to have packed lunch sandwiches. And dad would make me ham and cucumber sandwiches you know, with a cheap white bread. And he would always forget that I don't like butter in my sandwich. How could he? Yeah. And so I would go to school and the sandwich would be obviously squished by that point as well in your backpack. And I'd have the butter and I just couldn't eat it. Also, he would put a really oh, yeah. generous yes. of butter. Like, I love butter. I just want to say that. But you can have, you know, it would be like the, you know, almost like a slice of cheese. Mm. Yeah, where you're like, it's oh, really even cold. End. <laughs> I get it. I'm just so feeling it right now. I know. <laughs> the book, your critically acclaimed debut book. How did the idea for this come about? Had you always considered that maybe you'd end up writing a book? Did you get approached? How did it come about? Well, it, it was never an idea. We never sort of dreamed of writing a book. Obviously, you know, we didn't. You know, we sort of started with the supper clubs and we're happy doing that. We ne- never thought that we would do the, the cookbook, but... I think it came after we had quite a lot of good publicity in the media, obviously with Grace Dent as well. And we had uh, the piece in the Observer Food Monthly, which I think really sort of, I guess, sort of showcased what we were doing. And we were just so lucky that we were approached, I think, after that, shortly after that time. And obviously, when you get offered something so amazing like that, you can't really say no. What was it just an email that came through? It was emails. Mm. Because, yeah, after that piece which was really nice and it kind of you know we had like a double page spread of mm, us our faces bright orange in in the magazine so i think <laughs> that caught attention and then we we got emails several emails and i mean i suppose the it wasn't like the idea of a cookbook never entered our minds but i don't think we ever it would have entered our minds to actually what's the word there like, like pitch yeah to pitch or it. you know propose you know, actually do anything about it you know i think people had asked but you know and the whole process we don't know anything about and at that time, I was about to go on maternity leave. And I remember thinking, oh, this is, the timing is just so bizarre. And But anyway, it happened. And the other thing that was really exciting is, you know, we, are we, our books published by Ebri, And, see, you know, that's, they publish Ottolenghi mm. and like all these alongside names. All these big think, names. How can we have a book alongside Ottolenghi? This doesn't seem right. So I still can't believe that. And then... We obviously it's with writing the cookbook, you know, there's two of us and kind of shared that role. Mm. And actually it was really fun and hard, but I was gonna say it was also hard. It, 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 yeah, obviously it was always also hard. But... but I don't know if you guys ever look at your Amazon reviews, but you should. Because you basically have one negative review. And that <laughs> and that review is only negative because the person's talking about the cardboard box that the uh, book was delivered in. Oh, I see. There was another review which oh. I haven't actually looked at the reviews for a while. There was another review that was like there's too much garlic. Oh. <laughs> no, well, they're wrong because you I can't mean, have exactly. too much garlic. How, think, how exactly. is that possible? But isn't that amazing? Like, basically, your uh, only uh, criticism is Amazon to write those reviews, maybe. <laughs> it's, friends. it's really nice. It's so, so nice. Because, you know, ultimately, it's it's kind of a, a bit of a love letter to our family, really. And it's just a nice way of putting 
I guess, everything together into this physical something solid book we can share with our friends and family and all the people that supported us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you're going to have forever. It's amazing. I still don't believe it. No. (laughs) Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. I think this was actually both of us agreed on this one, probably. Although it might vary a little bit. Variations on it. But definitely curry. It's one we have every week, you know, need to be a bit more specific about curry. When I say curry, obviously that does, (laughs) your one will be different to my one. But I would say um, it's often a Burmese curry, just because they're very delicious. And it's often something called a mena, which is a beef curry. And it's sort of starts off with, so with all Burmese curries, often sort of with this triad of onions, garlic and ginger that you slow cook, particularly the onions. It's really key point of cooking Burmese curries. And you cook them for at least 20 minutes so that they get all caramelly and delicious. And then you add your spices and then often use beef shin and then leave it to slow cook in the oven to develop all those flavours. And so it's really tender and melt in the mouth. And, you know, curry is a great one to batch cook as well. So you cook that at the weekend and obviously those flavours develop over time as well. And um, if there are any leftovers... I guess I'm not actually talked about the sandwich, going back to the sandwich thing. I guess it's a half sandwich, but eating leftover beef curry on toast. Oh, yeah, I read that your mum used mom to do that. Would do that. Again, it's the white slice. The white slice toasted yeah. with the beef curry on it is divine. Following on from your onion chat, I remember people would come over, or like my, when I was in primary school, and they would be like, I don't understand why you've got so many onions. I think other parents would be like, mm. well, how come you've got so many onions? What, in the kitchen? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, that's just the normal amount of that's onions. That's like a day's worth of onions. Because <laughs> right? we do cook a lot of, with a lot of onions, especially with the Burmese curries. And, but um, I think the one, that the dish we most in, our, in my house would be, my husband cooks Mira's Soda's mum's chicken curry from her first cookbook. We probably have that nearly every week. It's really... It's really simple, but delicious. And like you say with batch cooking, because mm. the way you survive, I guess, with job and children and is cooking at the weekend, things that you can easily reheat during the week. So there's always going to be Mira's mum's chicken curry in the fridge. Also, something like a curry is so perfect, doesn't it? Because it only gets better. Oh, sure. Exactly. In fact, yeah. Yeah. I, I actively choose not to eat it on the day of cooking. Yeah, which is hard to do. It's hard. <laughs> but I have willpower. Um, so the book is very personal. Did it feel important for you to personally to get the recipes loved by your mother and grandmother written down purely just for yourselves? I think it's handy for myself because I do use it now. <laughs> because before it was all just very much guesswork. You know the way that lots of family recipes, you know, a bit of this, a bit of that, uh, very vague, add a bit more of this. And to actually write the recipes... Um, we would have we did get mum to make some of them whilst we watched her and you really have to be so careful because she'll add bits and bobs when you're not watching because <laughs> it's just so kind of second nature what they're doing but now I, I do use the book actually for some of the recipes I didn't make so much how about you I think that is I mean I do I have it on my phone so I'm always <laughs> either when I'm cooking it, these dishes at home or even with the supper pubs it's quite handy because then you can just increase <laughs> By so you know, and that helps with the amounts and things. But I do still end up doing yeah. like changing it rogue, as well, even though rogue. it's always I always like oh, I'll just put this in it now. I'll add another garlic bulb. But there's always like always add the extra um, garlic. It's bulb. always extra yeah. or the extra onion. So it's it's still changing. <laughs> but I do feel like with the older generations in particular, wherever wherever they come from. They're so bad at writing stuff down. And and as you say, it is all just intuitive cooking. And so we are sort of in danger of maybe losing some of those amazing recipes. So I do think it's incredible that you've written it all down. I think it does help us now, definitely. definitely. And even still, I think about some things that our grandma used to cook. And I mean, sadly, she's passed away now. But I I do have some regret over some of the things that she used to cook. And I I really don't know how she cooked them. And they were so delicious. So, yes, at least we have some of the things written down now. Yeah. Right, we're on to the sixth desert island dish, and that is your go-to dinner party dish. I mean, I understand, obviously, you're full-time doctors and you're running the supper club on the side, so I don't know if you have time to do dinner parties. 
Oh yeah, we definitely oh, do. do. <laughs> we definitely do. I mean, I think that's the like Emily was saying, it's the best way to sort of meet up with friends is just to have them over and just cook for them. And I mean, the thing is, you know, party dinner party dish. It wouldn't be a dinner party dish. No. Never be. I mean, it's got to be you know <laughs> multiple dishes again and multiple puddings. Definitely, because that's the other thing is we really love. We've got big sweet things in, yeah. so we have to have lots of puddings and. So yes, but I guess for the mains, it would be lots of things to share again. And I guess it, you know, it could be a Burmese feast with curries and salads and everything like that. But similarly, we love cooking all sorts of food. And I think one thing that I do cook a lot is is often a Spanish feast Ooh. as well. So um, I think we'd have like, we cook lots of croquetas in my new deep fat fryer, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> tortilla, prawns and you know, powder and peppers and everything. Again, it's that sort of sharing element. And then, yes, finished off with not one pud, but multiple puddings. What would the puddings be? Well, we do love a cheesecake. We've got a mango one in the book, but we do like, you know, making lots of different types of cheesecake. You know, we've done, I guess, Basque cheesecake would fit in, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be perfect. Um, And often it might be a trifle or something, or like a sticky toffee pudding, or (laughs) endless and this what is a traditional Burmese pudding? Oh. oh, well, I would say there isn't really a big thing about pud- Burmese pudding. There are lots of sweet things, which are kind of cakey or lots of coconut sweet things, more like snacks. I guess for us, the Burmese, what we would serve as a pudding, which I guess they would have more as a snack, is like a it's called Shwayane and it's mm. it's you have it at, at, at New Year and it's this coconut sweet soup. I'm not going to make it sound great, but coconut <laughs> sweet soup, which you have these green pandan noodles or I call them worms, but they're like um, made with mung bean flour and they're green, like they look like green worms basically. And there is coconut jelly in there and tapioca pearls and sometimes some sticky rice and then mm. you have a bit of white oh. sweet bread so why did this bread keep coming up which you might think oh white bread uh, in a fluid it's going to get soggy but it tastes really sweet and it's a sweet nice. bread though and it's really refreshing i hope i've made that sound no you have I, I, i'm yeah i'm a treat there are not enough asian southeast asian desserts available to buy i mean obviously if you go to chinatown there needs to be more. It is a great dessert. And I think particularly in hot weather, because that's mm, the thing you have it really cold refreshing. and with mm. ice as well. Mm. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's really good. Right. On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? We both have loads of cookbooks. This is a difficult one. But I've chosen the Honey & Co. Baking Book. And the reason I've chosen this is, well, their books are great. They're re- it feels like they're sort of just talking to me in my kitchen when I read them the recipes really work and obviously the restaurants are great as well it's it's really good to be able to recreate their baked goods and during my first maternity leave I guess although it's busy when you have your first baby you're kind of there are bits of time and you're kind of you're not working and you're looking for things to do so I made it my mission to try and do basically all the recipes in that baking book but it was really nice to have that to do so I have those memories of that first maternity leave, baking lots of things from their lovely book. They're also so lovely mm. and they've been really nice to us and supportive of us. And again, I guess I can't believe that. Why are they like so I, nice I would to never us? have imagined during that maternity leave, I'm going to meet these, these guys and they're going to be so nice to me. But I think you can feel that through their book, that they're just yeah. so lovely. And you basically had your own version of Julie and Julia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the next film. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yours your cookbook my cookbook you, yeah are you able my... to whittle down oh, your collection well I think it, it was probably just thinking about the first maybe the first cookbooks that maybe we started using when we were quite young it's probably just have to say Nigella the queen you know she's amazing and I think you know Nigella's how to eat and all of her cookbooks I think those are the ones which we would look at most when we were younger and um I think we we still continue to use them. And obviously, you know, the way that she writes recipes is amazing and all her food. We great. even let her say Nikuave exactly. and we love it. Exactly. <laughs> she can do she no can wrong. Yeah, she really can. On to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Are you having it together? 
Do you want to oh, share? Oh, well, we can have some meals together. As <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, you can do it. I mean, I said... Guys, that was very big rush. <laughs> <laughs> you can have separate leaving parties to go to the you, island. You can, you can veto some of mine. So I think to start... Now, you wouldn't have this. What would I not have? I would like... It's not very exciting, but just some really nice bread, not, but maybe like a... Crusty baguette. Crusty bread, white bread with butter. Like, uh, you know that bungay raw butter that you can get you wouldn't like oh that oh my gosh you that sounds like it's really good bread and butter for start do you have a different starter no i mean i i, I guess i would have bread and maybe something else to go you could dip it in some olive oil yeah i like yeah, yeah. some really lovely on oh gosh. and then i would have roast duck like cantonese style roast duck with rice would you I have, have that. Okay. <laughs> and then i would also have moo crob from a restaurant called Singburi in Leytonstone, which mm-hmm. is local to me. It's this crispy, <laughs> deep-fried pork belly which, with chilli, and it's divine. I eat it cold from the fridge the next day, but it's really amazing, and we have, like, two or three portions. Of it. Yes. And I would have mum's prawn curry. Would okay. you not have that? I would, but I'd probably have it alongside a roast dinner with all the trimmings. Does that, that fit? Okay. It doesn't matter. This is a, you know, um, a flexible feast. <laughs> We're just going to have everything on the table. Well, I think that's the thing. You could never choose. I'd definitely take one of your roast potatoes. Exactly. It, and I would dip it in the curry sauce. And that works, doesn't that it? Would work, yeah. I mean, I think anything that we'd have before going to Desert Island, it's carbs, really. That's what probably unites our answers. We have to have carbs. <laughs> and a pudding we've not and said pudding, pudding so I said for my pudding well I haven't actually said but I would have durian have you, had, have you tried durian? no it's the the fruit that everyone says is really smelly it's really delicious I guess I so but she's unusual she that you say to that think to be that we'd have it on the desert I'd island I'd say it might be at the desert island that you get put on so don't say fruit well it's indulgent and it's very say pricey you, it is like it's not like having an apple is it it's rich and quite high in fat and creamy Okay. Yeah. Something to give you now. That's that's true. Um, and I'd also have a sticky toffee pudding. Then I would probably die <laughs> of all that <laughs> high fat. Yeah, but you've got a lot of time to digest. Exactly. What's your pudding? I would have to say a sticky toffee pudding yeah. or like an apple crumble, custard, you know, cream, clotted cream. Right. Let's have all of those. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> Are you happy with your choices? Yeah. Would you rather have them separately? <laughs> Actually, no. We just like a bit of each other's yeah. as well. Okay. We'd get we, jealous. We'd share. So... We'd be okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Emily and Amy, those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that if you enjoyed today's episode, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and even subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And it really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to our sponsor, Cook's Matches, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.